0: Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everybody. It is so good to be able to speak with you this week. I wanted to start off by letting you know uh, about some of the places that the podcast has been listened to over the last couple of weeks in great numbers, which is always exciting and gratifying. And there's actually uh, a country that's new that I wanted to mention. First, uh, with our listeners, our regular listeners in Australia, thank you so much, and Sweden and Ireland and the Netherlands, and of course, the U.S. and Canada and the U.K. And to our listeners, actually, in Japan. Thank you so much. Please be in contact if you can and let us know about what resonates for you over there. And so for... Today, we have someone on the show who is so interesting and so learned, and you're going to learn a lot, actually, by listening to her and all of the research that she's done Sineen Shea is a nuclear engineer in South Carolina. Her childhood in white Christian nationalism normalized conspiracy theories like Obama's birtherism and the biblical apocalypse. But 2020, with COVID and QAnon, finally made her realize something was deeply wrong. Now, Sineen is writing a book, Taking Off the Tinfoil Hat, How Lizard People and Space Lasers Dismantled My Christian Worldview. Losing loved ones to the pandemic was a tragedy, but losing loved ones to the rabbit hole was its own tragedy, and Siné needed to understand the quote-unquote why of it. So, from the IBLP cult to Jewish space lasers, she pulled the thread, cracked her faith, and found the inseparable link between cults, conspiracy theories, and American white Christian nationalism. Here's Sene now. It is so nice to have Sineen Shea with me today, and I can't wait to have a conversation with you that's going to be so interesting that is something we haven't covered nearly enough, I think, on this podcast. So I'm so glad we're taking care of at least delving into part of the conversation today and getting your insights. So I'd
1: love you to take a moment and
0: introduce yourself for the listeners.
1: My name is Sinane, and I don't even know where to start. Uh, I'm from Florida, and that's pretty much all you need to know. So um, <laughs> When the pandemic hit, my entire community, including my entire family, got really into um, conspiracy theories, QAnon, anti-vax, voter fraud, you name it. And I eventually had to face the reality that it was because of my white evangelical upbringing This ideology that I had been raised in, that they were funneling towards all of these, like, absolutely insane beliefs, which led to an existential crisis, my own deconstruction. And, you know, I just think that it's a really common story. I hear over and over and over again that they lost a... brother or an aunt or a mom or a best friend to QAnon or to, you know, whatever crazy conspiracy theory it was. And I just don't think that enough people are talking about it, that enough people understand the connection between cults, totalistic ideologies and conspiracy theories, because really it's all the same conversation. And we're in a very unique position in history where I just don't think that we have coped with or even understood what has happened. So many people losing family members, so many, like the political position that we're in, um, everything is still like so in flux. It's also a unique opportunity to identify what the motivations are here. And I think that the conspiracy theories really brought a lot of stuff to the surface that had been latent for decades. And we have the chance to point them out and understand them now.
0: When you talk about things being latent, I think that's really fascinating because I was really wondering, you know, with people who had so much vitriol, hatred and fear of the other and, you know, where that all came from and could it have just been cultivated during this the last few years? And it feels to me right like it's been there and it's been it's been dormant or people didn't feel like they had. Uh, a flashpoint, a trigger point for it that would release it or they didn't have permission in the same way that I think they suddenly did to share how they felt no matter kind of how offensive some of their sharings were. And so I would love for you to be able to, to talk about that too if you feel like when we're in a period of time where it just wouldn't be acceptable to share those kinds of worries or feelings or hatred or divisive kind of way of looking at society, I think, that people keep them under wraps and then they just needed kind of an either an invitation or something that alarms them to release it. What do you think? Great question. So
1: basically, my upbringing was fundamentally white Christian nationalist, white evangelical Pentecostal, a little bit of Pentecostal, a little bit of the IBLP cult influence, hyper purity culture, private Christian schools, Bible camps, summer camps, all of that. And my community was deeply evangelical. The school and the churches that I went to, all of my friends, you know, their mothers were stay-at-home moms, very patriarchal. I think I had a slightly unique understanding or or upbringing in this because my family on the white Christian nationalist scale I feel like was a little bit more white nationalist than they were definitely evangelical and Christian but they were always very like Republican um, a lot of political conspiracy theories and things growing up they were big into like Obama birtherism and things but I was raised in a bubble of white Christian nationalism and so I Especially with the private Christian school for elementary and middle school, I did not understand the world. I'm having to go back and like educate myself on just like American history, what is racism, what is like the lie of American exceptionalism, which is kind of a core tenet of white Christian nationalism, um that we don't have unprecedented freedom and liberty that our history is rooted in slavery and, you know, Native American boarding schools and the anti-Asian immigration laws and all of this horrible stuff. So when we say that, you know, something happened post-Trump's presidency that we can, you know, say the quiet part out loud, that, you know, it's just okay to be like Islamophobic and racist and all of these horrible things now, it doesn't take into full account just how okay it's always been. Because You know, I was raised in an ideology that taught us explicitly and implicitly that, like, racism did not exist anymore. You know, that that ended with the civil rights and that everybody had equal opportunity in the United States and, you know, very much this principle of individualism. But that is not the reality. People have always been saying and doing you know racist misogynist homophobic things openly what i think happened recently is we're seeing the culmination of decades of this religious right movement um it, it it's always been there since the founding of the country but the modern version of white christian nationalism that we're seeing is uniquely started in the 1950s and 1960s. Um, a little bit with Billy Graham, but then the religious right really got going with Jerry Falwell and Tim LaHaye, the Moral Majority, um, the Council for National Policy, the Christian Coalition, all of these like religious right lobbying groups that learned to take the uh, evangelical power into politics. And That's been around, like I said, since the 1960s really is when it began. Um, What I think Trump did uniquely was he combined the religious right, which was already extremely powerful and extremely influential, more openly with like the alt-right. And Posner, Sarah Posner, the book Unholy, she does a really good job of explaining that culmination of the alt-right with the religious right in a way that had not been done before. People had, you know, courted one side or the other, but Trump, you know, said the quiet part out loud and allowed white Christian nationalism to just be white Christian nationalism.
0: It is so important to track this and also what caused what. You know, when you see things unfolding and people want to know how it all began, it's very interesting to see um, what you need as part of this recipe to make and create how it is now. I wonder, because I want to hear more about your family and more about your upbringing, but I I just as we're on this kind of trajectory leading up to now, it's like I'm handing you kind of this fictional crystal ball, if I can, for a moment. And if you can kind of let us know where where you think it's going to be going, at least in the near future, what do you envision?
1: I am... Not exactly a historian or a psychologist or anything like that. So take this with an absolute grain of salt. I'm also uh, deeply pessimistic. I mean, I think that in the immediate, what we are seeing currently happen, and there's some great groups who are tracking this that you can follow. I want to say American United, Andrew Seidel um, has written, he's a constitutional lawyer. He's written a couple books about white Christian nationalism. What we saw with the overturning of Roe versus Wade. And from what the Supreme Court justices wrote in their opinions on that, you could see there are already groups who are pushing to overturn rights for marriage equality. It's not like they're going to. They are already attacking at the highest levels rights for LGBTQ um, marriage and then what could also be tied to that um, would be rights to contraception, um, even things like interracial marriage. They already have so much momentum really pushing for the dissolution of separation of church and state. Um, there's already so much inculcation of the religious right into politics and into laws around education and you know government and whatever. They are already—they've um, already come very, very far— and I think that they're going to continue to do that. I think that a lot hinges on the next election, obviously. And I I do, on the optimistic side, um, think that awareness is growing for the first time, probably. I heard somebody say white Christian nationalism on CNN this week. So, you know, being able to identify the—we pr- can't, you know, fight a problem that we don't even realize is a problem and that we can't we don't understand. So I think the first step is just, you know, calling out white Christian nationalism as the, you know, movement that we're fighting here and then second to that, like we're really trying to understand it.
0: There's so much that happens under the radar for so many people um while we're busy, you know, saying the pledge of allegiance in school and waving our flags for whatever holiday Behind the scenes, people are orchestrating things. They're changing movements. They are rescinding protections. They're creating division. They're shifting uh, media portrayals to, to influence people, to indoctrinate. And it's very slippery. And I wish that they could be really upfront about the intention. But people often don't find that all of this has been going on until... Suddenly a law is passed and you're thinking, how the hell did that get through? You don't realize there are now already millions of people of that way of thinking. And how did they get there? And, you know, there's so much that I have in conflict with this country, even though I think it's, you know, a great place for a lot of reasons and way better than a number of other places, especially for women. When you hear about honor killings and all the different things that happen in other places, still... I just remember being in an elementary school and needing to do the Pledge of Allegiance, and then learning about internment camps. Right? Like, hmm. Okay, pledge allegiance to the flag. You like this is this glorious place? I'm sorry, what we do, <laughs> really? And knowing that, you know, l- learning about people who are African American who couldn't live in certain neighborhoods, and being someone who's Jewish, we couldn't be a part of certain. Whatever it was, clubs or anything else, and there's a quota in universities and uh, but still, we're supposed to be raw, raw. And so there is this internal conflict that has, I think, been true. And I think also for a lot of women and girls who who are raised in these fundamentalist groups that also are protected under the law, but they don't have rights, but they still need to love this country. And all the freedoms that it supposedly affords them. It's a it's a complicated mix,
1: you know? And that's something that I think is really, really important is just to accept, like to understand that it is complicated because white Christian nationalism is kind of this intersection of a lot of white supremacy. Like it isn't, it is fundamentally it's just white supremacy, but then also. Patriarchy. And then also, I think the part that like mainstream media, mainstream whatever might be most reticent to address is the Christian privilege. Identifying and recognizing each of the different ideologies is not meant to diminish the role and the abuses that each one does individually. But in order to like truly understand it, like white supremacy. And Christian supremacy, like, they're deeply interlocked and intertwined, as well as, like, Christian patriarchy. So we have to, again, just identify that this is the problem and understand our history through this lens, see how we got to where we are today. And basically, once there is that awareness, there's all of these groups that are moving in the shadows, like you said, who are, you know, all of a sudden there's a law passed that has, you know, that's been building up for years and years and years. And it's not that surprising if you know to look for it. And I just think that that's like really the first key step there. And I'm just going to keep throwing in like book recommendations (laughs) because, but Anne Nelson's shadow network, she's an investigative reporter and she does an incredible job following the money and showing that there really is this interlocking organized movement that has been pushing us in this direction for a very long time.
0: Okay. Thank you for that. No, I think people really do want to be able to know where they can where they can read more about it, where they can research, where, you know, kind of who is out there telling these stories and collecting this data. It's actually really, really important to know and trustworthy sources of the information. It's really important to know. So um, take me back in time with a special effect here. Um, if we can go back to you growing up in the family that you grew up in and and even how they got involved, sort of their origin story and their connection to this way of believing. So um would love to just get to know your history.
1: As far as I know, my parents were always raised as Christians. And I don't know, but I don't think that they were hyper-evangelical. My mother's side of the family is like from West Virginia, Appalachian, so, you know, Definitely in the water, but I don't know that they were going to church every Sunday. I, I've never really talked to them about it. You know, my my dad, his side of the family, they grew up going to church and things, but I don't know of what denomination or like how regularly. I think both of my parents were very independent, very free spirited, traveled the world. My dad did uh, kind of professional surfing before professional surfing was a thing, and my mom you know, she moved out from Florida to California when she was like 17 years old. And, um, you know, she she traveled, she was proposed to like eight times or something, like was very independent. And I think that when they had kids, um, eventually she moved back to Florida, she met my dad, they had me and my brother. Um, I think that when they had kids, um, especially my mother really wanted to raise us right Um, really turned back to the church much more heavily and raised us, as I said, in this like evangelical, white evangelical bubble. I'm from a small town, um, population's about 16,000 people. You know, I remember when we got the mall, I remember when we got an olive garden, like there used to be dirt roads, like it, it is a small town, but Uh, We were raised within an even smaller, more insular community in that town, Um, very few people of color. And I say that there were kind of three overlapping influences. We had the private Christian school that we went to, which was kind of a non-denominational evangelical church. And I find that generally the non-denominational Protestant churches, it's basically just Southern Baptist theology, but like with rock bands and like slightly more casual clothing. And then the church that we attended on Sundays was a non-denominational, generic Protestant church, uh, Calvary Chapel. They started in Southern California. They have like over 1,800 congregations worldwide now. And, you know, I kind of think of them as like the cool kid church. It's like very much like a wannabe mega church. And and then the third influence that I really had was my best friend who I met when I was 12. Um, So through all of middle and high school, I would attend youth group at her church, which was an honest Southern Baptist church, um, which is also where some of my older relatives attended church. So there was definitely like the pure Southern Baptist influence as well. All of these three circles were heavily overlapped people who went to the school, went to the church, went to the youth group, like, and a lot of the girls that I grew up with were going to IBLP summer camps. I remember seeing, like, Bill Gothard VHS tapes in in my friend's houses. These were the moms and the parents who were running our, like, you know, weekend Bible camps and teaching in our private Christian school. Um, So the, like I said, the hyper-purity culture was in the water. And through all of this, I was a true believer, like raised from birth into white evangelicalism. I didn't know that there was any other way to be. This is how you be a good person. Jesus loves you. I I never had like a born again conversion experience because I never didn't believe. You know, I, I grew up learning about Jesus and the Bible and, you know, salvation from before I could read, before I can remember. And I think that one of my saving graces was actually. You know, the fact that my mother was so independent and was—I I call her an accidental feminist because she definitely, you know, subscribes to complementarianism, Christian patriarchy, uh, a man as the spiritual head of the home, that kind of thing. But at the same time—and there was a lot of cognitive dissonance—at the same time, she was a firefighter in a time when women were not firefighters and— um. Her work experience, a lot of which happened before I was born, um, she had a really hard time in the industry. And she always told me growing up, and I think this is also because she had that real-world experience when she lived on her own and was independent and dated and had friends who were in abusive relationships. And she saw a lot of stuff that my I feel like my friend's parents did not ever see because they never left the town that they grew up in, they got married at 19 years old, that kind of thing. She always told me to focus on an education, that even though I was a woman, that I needed to be good at school, go as high as I could go, go to college, never trust a man, you know? (laughs) Um, A man can always leave you, was what she said. Like, I should find a God-fearing husband who would be the spiritual head of my home, but... She also had friends who had two, three kids, had been married for 15 years, and the husband cheated or something. So um, I had just enough of this influence of independence and, you know, kind of counter patriarchy that I had more opportunities, I think, than a lot of my friends growing up. I went to a public secular university, uh, the University of Florida, um, (laughs) <laughs> and a den of iniquity. And most of my friends, if they went to higher education, and most of them were homeschooled, if they went to higher education, they went to Bible college. A lot of people went to Liberty University, which was started by Jerry Falwell. And then there were a couple of schools in Florida that were like Christian Christian schools in Florida. I went to UF. I, I, I got a degree in nuclear engineering, like a very STEM degree and very self-sufficient, which is what my parents had always told me to be. Through all of this, I was fully indoctrinated, had not, did not shake my faith, did not question my beliefs. I went to college, you know, uh, apparently people came up to my parents saying that they were crazy for sending me to that godless school. And and in recent years years after i've been graduated now you know my parents and my brother and several other people have told me to my face that higher education brainwashed me um which is deeply ironic and and again i have a i have a stem degree you know calculus is not going to turn me into a communist but i went through undergrad in hindsight i see that i did not take full advantage of you know, the opportunities that I had because I wasn't prepared to live on my own, to live outside of the Christian bubble. I, you know, lived in a lot of fear, meeting new people, worrying if they were Christians or not, if it was okay for me to be friends with them, if they were going to be a worldly influence on me or, you know, the pressure for me to be a light to save them, um, just like really kind of discourages branching out, you know, and, and I eventually did. You know, make friends in the nuclear engineering department, um, and I did branch out, but I it did not shake my faith. Ultimately, I you know they people ask all the time, like when did you start to doubt? And I was just like, never. <laughs> uh, they did a really good job indoctrinating me with conspiracy theories because this played a huge part in my deconstruction and my you know waking up. There were moments growing up that I did recognize were not right. Obama birtherism, you know, Obama was the president. I want to say that around the time I was in early high school and I didn't know any better. My parents said that he wasn't born in the United States and he wasn't eligible to be the president. And I was just like, okay. But I I was like, well, I don't really know anything about politics. I'm just going to, you know, I trust them implicitly. And it wasn't just my parents. It was All of my friends' parents, it was my preachers, my pastors, my teachers. I was like, I guess they just know more than I do. But I wasn't like running around debating it with people at school or anything because I just didn't know. And then things got progressively worse. Um, And I do think that it was partially because of the Obama presidency and just white supremacy. I think that we'd always had guns, but they got a lot more guns you know, suddenly we went from having, like, a gun or two guns to having a locker full of guns, borderline, like, doomsday prepping. And my mother had always been deeply, uh, like, obsessed with the rapture, telling me when I was, you know, maybe 10 years old that, like, based on biblical prophecy, Jesus was coming back in her lifetime and that I needed to be ready. And it was just, it was just something that, you know, we accepted. That was just a part of you know, rea- eventually, at any moment, Jesus was going to come back. Of course, rapture anxiety. Anytime I lost my mom in the mall or the grocery store, um, God forbid, I hear a trumpet. Uh, <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. Like there, there was a bucket of corn seed in our pantry at one point, and I'm pretty sure that it was there for my parents to farm their land in the event of an Obama communist uprising, and. I knew at least one family, maybe two families who had an actual underground bunker. And fast forward through undergrad, because I wasn't home as much, when Obama transferred power to Trump in like, you know, January of 2017 or whatever it was, my mom launched into the, like, it it was actually very awkward. I contract for the Navy and the nuclear propulsion training program. And I had just graduated from this training program um, that I then turn around and, like, teach in. And I lived in an apartment complex, and there was a lot of military people in the apartment complex, and my parents were visiting, and they found some naval officer who's, like, a solid 22 years old. Like, we we have a child. And uh, my parents corner him. And my mom just goes off on this rant about how she'd seen this thing on YouTube about when Obama refuses to relinquish power to Trump and declares himself to be the Muslim king of the United States. Uh, what? <laughs> uh, who, who, is it true that the chief nuclear admiral of the Navy becomes like the head of the real America and he's the guy who gets to decide when we nuke the White House? You know, and I mean, that's that's insane and like kind of hilarious, but um, it it wasn't really tied to anything deeper for me at the time. You know, now in hindsight, you look back and you're like, oh, that's so funny. Like, like whatever. But I mean, at the time, I'm, I recognized like, oh, this is insane. This is crazy. I like extracted them away from this poor 22-year-old nuclear officer. And he was so kind. Uh, and he had this thick Texas, Texas accent. And he was just like, well, ma'am, I, I don't rightly know. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, you know, and and I told him, I was like, you can't be saying crazy things like this to people. Like, where did you fe- like see this? and both of my parents, their only reaction was then to yell at me for being disrespectful and that I needed that they could talk to whoever they wanted to talk to about whatever they wanted to talk about and that I just didn't know what I was talking about. And there were there were incidents like that over the years from high school through undergrad through like the few years like after, um, you know, when I started working where I, I understood that like. They believe some crazy stuff, but I didn't tie it to anything deeper. I didn't, you know, I just thought, oh, either they're old people and, you know, they just believe some crazy things or um, it doesn't really matter. You know, like, oh, they believe like a, I, I didn't even think I knew to call it a conspiracy theory. It was just something. And it wasn't until the pandemic when basically we just reached a point of overwhelming cognitive dissonance. Um, The conspiracy theories were just so obvious and so rapid fire and coming from so many different places that I couldn't ignore it anymore. And it started in July of 2020. So it was during like the first big summer spike when we did not have vaccines. And I was considered an essential worker, so I was still going into work. And my best friend, um, who I'd known since I was 12... She had been planning to come stay with us on her way up to, from Florida to North Carolina to see some family since before the pandemic. And then the pandemic hit and, you know, I told her, I was like, if you need a free place to stay you can still stay with us, but understand that I'm an essential worker. I'm potentially exposed. Like there, you know, there's an element of risk here. Like, and normally when people come to visit, we do the whole tourist thing. We go out to all the restaurants and the sightseeing and like, we do a whole thing. Uh, And I, you know, I told her, I was like, you know, we're not going to be able to do that. She was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. She comes, she stays the night, and she's exactly my age. We have the same birthday. And she immediately gets out of the car, asks if she needs a face mask. And I was like, yeah. And she was like, oh, haha! this is the first time I've ever worn a face mask. In July. And I had not truly encountered... Any hardcore like COVID denialism up to this point, you know, and it's hard to talk about this stuff now because in hindsight, it's so obvious. But at the time, this is like the first thing that you're kind of hearing in that direction. So I was like, oh, that's a weird comment. And we just moved on. She spent the rest of the weekend basically making fun of us for taking COVID seriously, being kind of annoyed that we weren't going into any restaurants or anything. And her best friend, when I was an undergrad, she was teaching English in Taiwan through an IVLP program, the Institute and in Basic Life Principles cult. And her best friend that she met teaching English over there was a girl from California. I'd met her once. She was posting rapid fire on Instagram, a bunch of conspiracy theory stuff, talking about how there's an imminent communist wave about to take over the country. And... um, a lot of stuff about the Antichrist, a lot of stuff about biblical end times. Like these are biblical end times. The rapture is imminent. Talking about how face masks were child abuse um, and face masks were slavery. Um, just like a whole bunch of like crazy stuff. And this was the craziest thing that I had seen to that point. And I was talking to my friend about it and I was like, whoa, what's going on with this California girl? And she just was not bothered. She's like, oh, I don't know. Like, oh, you don't believe in any conspiracy theories? and I didn't know how to answer that question. I was like, what, like, Bigfoot? Like, (laughs) uh, maybe. And she left, and the very next day basically changed the trajectory of my life. She sent me a voice message that essentially is why I have deconstructed um, and what launched me down, like, this whole path. And it it was like, oh, because we've been talking about conspiracy theories yesterday, um, I thought you might think this is interesting. My best friend from this church that she went to in our hometown, and it's a small town. I know multiple people who go to this church. Um, She's like, my best friend from this church told me that when the COVID vaccines come out, they're going to be full of secret metal. And that the metal in your blood is going to interact with 5G radiation in order to either control your mind and make you vote Democrat or kill you. She wasn't sure which one. And one I'm a nuclear engineer and you're talking to me about 5G radiation conspiracy theories and it's just like insulting. Um, <laughs> and, and and two, uh, first I didn't, I was like, oh, that's so fun. Like your friend found this crazy thing online. Like, oh, that's crazy. And I didn't think that she believed it. And then she was like, no, no, she believes this. And basically, at this point, I became concerned. Um, I started paying more attention. You know, my friend was not An old person, this was not normal behavior for her. She had not been like really interested in conspiracy theories before the pandemic. This was just strange. And when I started paying attention, I started seeing everybody on Facebook and Instagram posting similar content um, talking about, you know, patriots and a lot of stuff about like child sex trafficking and how Trump was like, you know, fighting the deep state. People were sending started sending me videos, like my mom and my friend's mom, talking about George Soros and Bill Gates and how they were running some sort of satanic cabal and, you know, a lot of like fear-mongering over like the vaccine that was still imminent. And my mom was sending me videos from Judy Mikovits, who was in the pandemic documentary, um, which was a a huge um, vector point for conspiracy theories spreading. And then um, Simone Gold, who is or was the head of the America's Frontline Doctors Association, which is the group that really popularized the hydroxychloroquine conspiracy theory. My dad only has one lung and is over 65 years old and is a cancer survivor. So he was the definition of high risk, but my parents were stockpiling hydroxychloroquine and we were taking ivermectin, which is a horse dewormer and vitamin D and thought that this was going to protect them from the pandemic. My brother was in the same vein. Um, I reached out to him thinking that maybe he could, you know, he lives with my, my parents. Maybe he could talk to them um, and t- get them to take the pandemic seriously. And he just told me that the CDC was lying about the death toll and that we should just let the weak die even though like that included our dad, like it doesn't make any sense. And during all of this, (laughs) we were planning our wedding. Um, (laughs) Okay. Great. So the weekend after my friend came to visit and that started all of this, uh, my now husband proposed. And so I of course asked her to be the unofficial maid of honor, um, and then like two or three other bridesmaids, um, two other bridesmaids from my hometown. And once I figured out what QAnon was, and that I could put like a, a a title to it, and I understood, you know, that it came from 4chan and then 8chan, and it's this weird, you know, just I'm in engineering, you know, so I, I know nerds, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> I I had heard of 4chan before. I had heard of 8chan before. And, you know, m- most people in my hometown, you're lucky if they know what Reddit is, which is, you know, the much more civil side of, of these websites. And I understand, I understood what like trolling was and like internet culture and these like inside jokes that is really what kind of, what QAnon kind of spawned from. And it was so obvious, but it's so outside the realm of their understanding of anything um, that when I tried to explain it to my friends and family, um, they just thought that I was like ranting about, oh, that's just Sinane with her like, you know, nerd stuff. And they cu- they were like, oh, I don't know what Q is. I don't know what QAnon is. Um, I don't believe in mole children. I don't believe in adrenochrome. Th- that doesn't apply to me. And they couldn't see that it was connected. But at the same time, one bridesmaid was talking about Wayfair Shipping Children. And there's a whole thing about that, that if we remember, Circle remind me to talk about the pastel QAnon summer of, I want to say, 2020 Wayfair Shipping conspiracy theory. um, is it, It really is what mainstreamed QAnon. The same time that this stuff hit me with my friend visiting in the summer of 2020 was the same time that it exploded on in mainstream media. It hit Facebook and Instagram at the same exact time. So it's not a coincidence that this is when I was introduced to it because of the Wayfair Shipping, Child Shipping conspiracy theory um, and the popularization of a lot of like sex trafficking misinformation. That's what really blew all this stuff up. But yeah, so one 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 bridesmaid was like, oh, I don't believe in QAnon, but was talking about Wayfair. Another bridesmaid was like, oh, I've heard about this. My, her aunt, who's a woman that I've known my entire life, apparently had gone hardcore into QAnon. She'd been hard pilled. She, they couldn't get her off the computer. She was doing her own research all the time, um, like deep into like the the message boards and things. Um, and she had told my bridesmaid that all of the hurricanes that hit Florida in 2020 were man-made by Jewish space lasers with the intent of sinking the state of Florida because DeSantis had given them too much freedom. And when I had that conversation, (laughs) that was, you know, we, we went from 5G radiation, mind control to Jewish space lasers. Like now I'm like, okay, now this is the craziest thing I've ever heard of. And like, I had barely scratched the surface of the people in my hometown. Like I figured out what QAnon was. I went and I, went to tell my friends and family about it because I wanted to pre-warn them about it. Um, I had barely scratched the surface and had found just the most feral, rabid anti-Semitism possible with the littlest bit of digging. And by this point, it was like trying to, you know, use a bucket to put out a wildfire. It wasn't just my brother or my mom or my dad or my bridesmaid or my other bridesmaid or my maid of honor or, you know, all of their families. It was literally every single person in the community that I grew up in. And it it was overwhelming. When we got married, I eventually just had to uninvite my best friend from our wedding because she was like, I can't believe you don't believe in child sex trafficking. And, was refusing to get the vaccine and was endangering other people. And to be clear, sex trafficking, labor trafficking, adult and child trafficking, all very, very real and serious issues. But the QAnon version of this actually hurt the cause and was flooding legitimate law enforcement and charity organizations with false accusations and um, false tips on the hotlines and things to the point where multiple organizations had to come out with um, official statements condemning QAnon and condemning like the wayfair shipping conspiracy because it was actively harming the, the cause that all of these women were like so concerned about. Oh, yeah. I remember Save the Children
0: was drowning. I mean, you know, it's a wonderful organization, but not the one that was made up to, quote unquote, save the children, according to QAnon. Also just to say before you continue you know one of the things that happens when I hear people say you no no this is a whole other way of looking at things and it's unique and 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 you know we now have the ticket to the truth we've uncovered the truth what is so? interesting about these things that are so unique in their thinking, supposedly, is that they all devolve in the same way into hatred of the other, into anti-Semitism, into xenophobia. So how can they be such unique thoughts if they all follow the same trajectory, winding up in the sa- exact same place? And so I think the whole thing also with the adrenochrome and, you know, likening, I mean, it really is sort of this tie in with the blood libel that, you know, Jews were killed for over millennia. And also for people to know, and I mentioned this actually one time a while ago on the uh, podcast, and it's a weird thing that you feel like you even have to explain this or sad thing, I should say, um, the idea that, you know, with QAnon, that, that people are going to be extracting something from children to use for their benefit, just like it was talked about, the Jews stealing the blood of Christian children to make their matzah. I mean, that that was, it's so disgusting of a principle, but also it is the exact opposite of what any Jewish person would do, because if there's any blood in any of our, food even in an egg when you open an egg if there's a dot of blood you can't use it it's not kosher and so um just being able to have people say and and kill Jews over that that you know somehow they they stole the blood of children to use for their matzah it's exactly that that would make it non-edible for a jewish person but none of that matters right like it's not logic based it's not fact based no one asked but it becomes the you know the it's like with George Soros, like it's just like the, you know, the usual suspects over and over and over again. So how can this be such a unique thought, right?
1: So I, I'm writing a book about all of this, um, about the connection between conspiracy theories and cults and my experience and my deconstruction. Um, and And really the first half of it is kind of just the conversation that we've had and just trying to really show and prove that, This is a problem, and it it is fundamentally anti-Semitic, as most conspiracy theories are, Um, and exactly as you said, Blood blood libel started sometime in the, I want to say, like the 1100s. It was like a medieval thing. It was like some Byzantine monk or something wrote a, a pamphlet, passed it out, said that Jewish people were kidnapping priests and young Christian children to perform some sort of satanic blood ritual. None of this was actually happening, of course. But that has literally stuck around since 1100, since the Middle Ages. And then the other thing that's like, you know, really important to point out is The Protocols of the Elders of Zion. And this was actually a French satirical political pamphlet that was written sometime in the late 1800s. A couple years later, somebody found it in like Eastern Europe, plagiarized it, swapped out the bad guys for Jews, and then republished it as The Protocols of the Elders of Zion. And it's been published under several different names throughout history, but um, it was just in time for Hitler. And it got really, really popular. Ford, the truck guy in the United States, was deeply anti-Semitic, passed out his own version of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. Um, Hitler used it in his anti-Jew propaganda. And basically, the conspiracy theory is that there is a global cabal of Jewish elites who are pulling the strings of global governments and economies to drive the world towards one world order and what have you. And so when you look at conspiracy theories, anything that's like really um, overarching, like um, world-building, flat-earth. It's just a plagiarism of a plagiarism. It's It's just regurgitating the protocols of the elders of Zion. You know, Flat Earth says that there is a global cabal of satanic elites who are tricking everybody into thinking that the earth is round. QAnon said that there is a global cabal of satanic elites that are pulling the strings of global governments and economies. And, you know, if you go to 8chan or, you know, where the conspiracy theory was actually being posted, like, there are explicit references to Jews by people posting about this, um, but for the most part, it's it's watered down so they don't say Jew, but, like, everybody knows what you're talking about. So it's fundamentally anti-Semitic. And then the other big part of QAnon is that the global cabal is trafficking hundreds of thousands of children. In some cases, uh, the conspiracy says that they are breeding children in order to traffic them, uh, hence mole children, and that there are tunnels under every major city, and that Donald Trump is the only person who is powerful and elite who is not a part of the cabal, and that George Soros, Bill Gates... Hillary Clinton, Obama, these are the people who are, like, running this organization. So my friend was really into the trafficking conspiracy theories. And that was, um, like we said, in the summer of 2020, what mainstreamed it, what got it onto Instagram and Facebook was basically this appeal to Christian and Mormon mommy bloggers. And it was a purposeful campaign that like some QAnon influencers, purposefully soft pilled people, took this trafficking misinformation, put it onto mainstream social media platforms. And these mommy bloggers who already had really well-established social media accounts and At the same time, this was the summer that BLM was really taking off. They wanted to feel like moral crusaders and, you know, all all the social justice work that was going on with BLM, but white supremacy. So they, you know, couldn't get behind BLM. So what's more important than fighting racism? Child sex trafficking. And so... They call this pastel QAnon, because all of these, like, Mormon Christian mommy bloggers would take this misinformation, make it really pretty with, like, pastel colors and, like, aesthetics, uh, and then regurgitate it ad nauseum. And there's some really interesting articles that track, like, the actual statistics of the growth from, like, just from, like, July to August. It is uh, exponential. So my friend got wrapped up in that. She was very concerned about uh, child sex trafficking, very obviously concerned about biblical end times my family my immediate family was more interested in the anti covid anti vax conspiracy theories and that's where rfk junior was really huge uh, one of the one of the top 12 disinformation uh, distributors during the pandemic um and he has his children's health defense organization that is Literally, just like an anti vax organization to like uh, encourage parents not to get their children vaccinated. And he would speak at events and at rallies and things. And one of his, you know, more infamous statements was that, you know, oh, even in Nazi Germany, you could run and hide in an attic, but we anti vaxxers, there's like no escape for us. So basically saying that they had it worse than Anne Frank, who was murdered in a concentration camp. So, just the most vile anti-Semitism. So, it's connected to horrific anti-Semitism and racism, and it's also, you know, the the white supremacy of like the counter BLM movement. It's also connected to counter work against actual sex trafficking charities and things, and then just the obvious effects of not getting necessary medical care during a global pandemic. You know.
0: Right, it's it's truly incredible, and it's interesting you mentioned Ford because yeah, ooh, what a nasty guy! I remember learning about him uh, introducing square dancing in more into American culture so that it would take the place of jazz dancing, which was evil and which was African-American and uh, sinful. And that square dancing, you stayed a certain distance from each other and you only touched for a certain amount of time and you had to follow the steps that you were given. You couldn't do your own thing like within jazz, which was going to be much more sinful. So, yeah, that was his way of kind of trying to control the masses by making sure, even though square dancing already exists, but still he made it very popular and and paid school districts, paid people to bring it into their schools so that they wouldn't enjoy jazz. And that is fascinating to me. So yeah, you can look it up. It's really interesting little tidbit. And there are probably other things like that out there that have happened over time. We had no idea what the origin story was of that. I remember also doing an intervention one time to help a family. And I talked about this briefly on the podcast, but also a while back. This family's daughter was getting involved in um, believing that the storm was coming, that, you know, she she had to hide, she had to stockpile, she had to be careful, and everyone else had to be careful, and everyone else was a moron for not—I mean, th- that was the words that she used—for— uh, Uh, Not believing. And um, her father was very concerned about her being so susceptible to this kind of paranoia, saying that she'd always been kind of gullible, also his word, that she would get caught up in things. Then during a break one day, he asked me to explain why the Jews started the African slave trade. Okay, this man who is concerned about his daughter being open to ideas that he thinks are crazy. And he asked me that seriously. I said, the Jews who d- weren't in this country? I'm sorry, which ones are we talking about? The ones in Eastern Europe? What? And my colleagues who were there with me who have dealt with this kind of a lot with different people where they can see that something is not n- not based in fact, but they can't see it in other areas they actually saw that I i was so shocked. I actually lost all the color in my face and didn't know really. I felt like it was like this weird gut punch of reality of, wow, this idea only goes so far that that people are going to be susceptible and that the other things, though, seem factual. So they said, Rachel, why don't you go outside? take a, Take a little walk. We got this. <laughs> Thank goodness. I will always be grateful to them. And then they knew the history on it. They could help. But... It was. It's just interesting to also see where people um, don't. They don't recognize things across the board. They don't actually see that that there are so many things that don't have merit. When it underscores or supports their own hatred and their own bias or their own fear, that's when it all the logic all breaks down. It's very interesting.
1: Yeah. So. Basically, what happened was I deconstructed out of white Christian nationalism and evangelicalism, whatever you want to call it, um, specifically on December 24th, 2021, Christmas Eve, the specific date, because I basically just tried to get through the wedding and was just thinking like, it can't possibly be this bad. And I I learned what QAnon was. And, I was and, and the whole world was learning what QAnon was and was trying to educate myself at the same time that I was dealing with them. So I had an imperfect picture of what was happening. And I, I was just like, I must be wrong. Like, it cannot be this bad. Don't burn every bridge, you know, just get through the wedding and like, you know, don't, don't burn every bridge. I burnt the bridge with my 5G radiation friend. I was like, do not show up to the wedding, but everybody else. And almost immediately after the wedding. We got married in uh, the end of October. So December 24th, Christmas Eve, we were visiting. Uh, well, and and for the actual wedding, instead of worrying about like the color of the napkins and like the, you know, the what spoons to use and like typical wedding stress, I'm worried that somebody's going to start talking about Jewish space lasers to my in-laws. And then on top of all of the, um, you know, like the COVID pandemic issues and things, and we got very lucky that our wedding was timed for kind of the lowest point of Delta right before Omicron took off. And at the time, we thought the vaccines were like 99, 98% effective. So we we felt comfortable having an outdoor wedding, but there was a lot of stress. And it was it, wedding stress, COVID stress, QAnon stress. And Christmas, we were visiting my husband's family. I feel really bad because his sister had just bought this gorgeous new home. They had a new baby. It was baby's first Christmas. We were visiting them for Christmas and I am having a full-blown existential crisis.
0: Happy holidays. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Um, I, I got two text messages, one on the 23rd, one on the 24th from people who do not know each other, one from a work friend, one from an undergrad friend. And they were almost verbatim the same exact text message. And because they knew that I knew everything about QAnon, they both said, help, I'm home for Christmas. My dad is saying some crazy QAnon stuff. What do I do? And I did not have an answer for them because I was like, I've been trying unsuccessfully for almost two years at this point, and. By this point, I had started reading some more books, um, how to talk to people who are wrapped up in conspiracy theories, how to talk to people who are in cults, make emotional connections, appeal to, like, appeal to your relationship, don't just try to logic them out of it. Like, you know, I tried every, you know, appeal to their sense of justice. Like, I tried every different uh, angle that I could possibly think of, um, but it was almost kind of like a um, an inverse intervention because instead of like a whole room of like loved ones talking to somebody it was just me against an entire room and you know i i texted them back and i was like i'm i'm so sorry at this point if your your dad is talking about how the booster shot is the mark of the beast like i don't know that there's anything you can do and it just felt and i knew that this was not like a my family problem i knew that this was not a my hometown problem i knew that this was affecting a lot of people but for me to Finally, see it affecting people that I respected and cared for was kind of just like the final straw that broke the camel's back. I had been trying not to burn all of these bridges, and I looked around and realized that the bridges were already burnt, just not from my end. And it wasn't just that, like, oh, all the evangelicals are falling for these conspiracy theories. It's all of these evangelicals are falling for these conspiracy theories because they are white evangelicals. There is something wrong with the belief system that I grew up in and that I am a part of that has led us to this point. And I had what felt like a physical snap, like in a single moment was kind of my deconstruction. And I've read some books, uh, I've read a lot of books, but since then, talking about people who, you know, deconvert out of cult movements and totalistic belief systems and things. And I think that it, it was fairly typical that it took me about a year to feel like I had my feet under me again. And my deconstruction was really focused through the unique lens of conspiracy theories. Because I didn't initially start digging into the theology of evangelicalism. I initially started by just trying to read books about conspiracy theories. You know, why do people believe conspiracy theories? And, you know, I read Suspicious Minds by Rob Brotherton, American Conspiracy Theories by usensky and Parent. Michael Shermer's conspiracy uh, I think he's he's is kind of like a right-wing person but his book had a lot of good information in it and uh, a couple others and a lot of them are written before the Trump administration and a lot of mostly what those books focused on was stuff like the 9/11 truthers or Bigfoot hunters, or the moon landing was fake, or the school shooting uh, false flag conspiracy theories. Flat Earth, even. You know, these things that kind of we think of as traditional conspiracy theories that are, you can believe that there was a second shooter for JFK's shooting and live a predominantly normal life, you know? And I just don't think that that is what I was dealing with it wasn't just like a conspiracy theory. It was an encompassing worldview. And I think there's a lot of overlap. Like most of what those books focus on are the logical fallacies that all humans are kind of prone to. Fallacy of bias is like a huge one. You know, you you are preconditioned to believe that something that agrees with your pre-existing beliefs is more true than something that doesn't. But stuff like Fallacy of scale. If something really, really big happens, we think that something really, really big must have caused it. But that's not necessarily true. So for COVID, you know, a global pandemic couldn't have been caused by a little lab leak or a virus mutation. It must be the result of some sort of like global cabal scheme or kind of this fallacy of magnitude. Like, the human brain just isn't very good at understanding how big or how small some stuff is. Like, once you reach a certain number, it just doesn't really mean anything. Like, something on the order of, like, you know, 10 to the negative 28. Like, that doesn't mean anything to us. So when we were talking about the pandemic... X millions of people have died worldwide, the news kept saying like, oh, it's this many 9-11s a day or it's this many football stadiums, just trying to put it into perspective for something that people can understand because without that, we can't connect to, you know, the empathy of the situation. We just kind of like write it off. So all all of these different like logical fallacies and things um, and uh, our agency bias, our intention bias, all of these things that we're just kind of hardwired to be predisposed to push us into conspiracy theory beliefs, but it didn't answer the kind of big picture totalistic worldview that I felt I was dealing with. And it wasn't until I found books about cults that I felt like I finally could, was kind of putting my finger on it. And you obviously have uh a lot of experience in this, so if I say something that you disagree with, please please let me know. Um, but I read books by like Robert J. Lifton, uh, Margaret Singer, Yanya Lalich, Stephen Hassan. You know these people who were cult experts, and what I, my impression was that people use different language. That nobody really agrees on like one specific definition, or like, and there are like the uh, ICsA, and you know there there are like official definitions, but like each expert kind of has their own spin on it, and. What Jan Walich and Margaret Singer called a cult was a totalistic, uh, a transcendent belief system, a charismatic leader, a system of control, and a system of influence. And um, when you look at Jonestown or Heaven's Gate or, you know, the Manson family are these really, really famous destructive cults that ended in, like, mass suicide or, like, mass murder or, like, what have you. White Christian nationalism is not the same. It doesn't fit that definition um, and and you hear people who say, like, oh, the cult of Christianity or um, you know, white Christian nationalism is a cult. And like on, on a certain sentiment, like I, you know, there's a lot of parallels to be drawn there, but it just depends on what language you're using. What really helped me was Robert J. Lifton's language of totalistic ideologies and instead of conspiracy theories, kind of shifting more towards moral panics because also kind of digging into the history of the religious right and, you know, the 1960s and the 1950s um, that I talked about before, you can see that, and and it's it's very paralleled to kind of like historical political totalitarian movements, Um, like large scale totalistic ideologies like adopted into politics. But the The Red Scare of the 1950s really provided a lot of fuel, a lot of fear fuel, a moral panic to drive people in the direction of the religious right. And then in the 1960s and 70s, you had the Love Revolution, and you kind of started to form this uh, family values moral panic. And then in the 1980s, you had the satanic panic, which again kind of goes back to, you know blood libel and, like, all of these, like, regurgitated conspiracy theories. And then I grew up in the 1990s, and my experience in the 1990s was this very very insular uh, community and an alt culture. We had Christian books, Christian movies, music, camps, schools, Christian everything as an alternative to American culture, and I really think that a lot of that was birthed out of the satanic panic. You know, that moral panic really pushed us into this alt-culture. And, you know, the 1960s and 70s, you had the generation of, like, the Falwells. In the 1990s, you had this massive influence of, like, the Dobson dynasty. And that's just, like, kind of the the culture influence on, on top of the political influence. And now we're dealing with kind of what is an outright attack by white Christian nationalism? They, like, they've like they gone from like moving in cultural and political currents into like basically a purposeful attempt to infiltrate and overthrow the government. And my belief is that the moral panic that is really the heart of the totalistic ideology of white Christian nationalism is this family values
0: moral panic. Interesting. That's very interesting. I know we're about to be done with our time together, but But I wanted to say a couple of things here that, you know, when there is this overlap between um, these political movements, religious movements, and also something happening within our culture that is affecting people psychologically, then you have this perfect storm. Then you have this idea that takes hold very similar to the satanic panic, which affected my work a lot. I was suddenly getting calls from everyone saying that they were in a satanic group or that their child was, because they could tell by the way they were dressed, because their pastor said, if they're wearing this or not wearing that, they're satanists. By the way, it's it's not a problem to be a satanist. And I will be talking more about it uh, because there's nothing d- dangerous about it. And But there were true sociopaths who would run these kinds of, um, I don't know what they were, like services, I guess. Um, and, you know, uh, sitting on a pentagram and would use that power to abuse people, to abuse animals, but it had nothing to do with Satanism, just sociopathy. But, but, there along with all of this and people getting worried about people going too far afield away from religion away from mainstream religion or away from you know being able to have a good moral code and then there was this book a courage to heal that came out during that time right which was very dangerous very irresponsible and there uh, there's that whole idea right that if you have repressed memories if there's a part of your childhood you can't remember that absolutely means that you were abused, that you were sexually abused 100%. So uh, people were then accusing their parents of things and parents were going to jail and they hadn't done anything. And people were coming to me uh, saying they're survivors of abuse. It's very hard to make my way through that to see if that was true or not. But they had already connected. That's the other piece of this. They'd already connected with a whole society, with a whole community of people who were fellow victims and survivors and they didn't want to give that up by finding out in fact that those things didn't happen to them um so they hung on to their story of the repressed memory of abuse it it is so multi-layered so thick that then you have something like a pandemic which is going to cause yet a whole other cascade of anxiety of feeling out of control and needing to gain control needing to stockpile you know needing to believe needing to have the answer and so it is it's so sad when you see this it's so much part of human nature that just gets triggered over and over and over again in in the exact same way and in for different reasons and so i feel like we're living in that time again but i i want you to be able to finish with whatever thought you wanted to finish with and then we'll we'll call it a day
1: yeah sure so basically when we're having The discussion about conspiracy theories. And I know that this affects so many people that, like, you know, you've lost loved ones, you know, hopefully not physically due to the pandemic, but, you know, to the rabbit hole, basically. There's not always a happy ending to that, or the happy ending comes after years and years of a lot of hurtful conversations and just hurtful nonsense, you know, the misinformation and the conspiracy theories and things. And why I am so focused on why Christian nationalism is because when you believe that the world, the universe is broken down into the ultimate good and ultimate evil of like God and Satan. And, you know, this spiritual warfare and everything, hell and heaven and what's pushing evangelicalism, penal substitutionary atonement, you view the world through a myopic lens. And this is what jan Lalic called bounded choice and what Lifton called personal closure. You have to explain events and phenomenon through that myopic lens. So why was there a pandemic why did Donald Trump lose the 2020 election? It can't be because the majority of Americans didn't want to live in a misogynistic, homophobic theocracy. That's not one of the bounded choices. When you believe that it's God versus Satan, it must be because white evangelicals were not strong and righteous enough and God abandoned them, or there was some sort of satanic tampering. And so... Conspiracy theories. When you have a totalistic ideology, conspiracy theories are absolutely inevitable. And when you're talking about conspiracy theories, you are talking about cults. Like I don't think that we can understand one group or the other without understanding the connection between the two.
0: I agree. I truly agree. Yeah, right. And and I think that's why people were intuiting. You know, they they're calling people like me, saying, "I think this is the same kind of thing." Uh, It feels the same. I saw this special on cults, but this feels like what's happening in my family system, um, politically or whatever else. But so, so thank you. Thank you so much for this deep dive, this really important discussion and so much information and so many great uh, resources also that you let people know about. And I can't wait to see your future book. And, um, and that's very exciting. And thank you, thank you, thank you really for all all that you're doing and all that you educated us about today.
1: Thank you so much for having me. This is wonderful.
0: My pleasure. One more thing before you go. Thank you to Sinane for her wisdom and again her research and how much she has to share. And I can't wait for you all to read her book. One of the things that she mentioned was this idea that she realized that her family's evangelical upbringing had really led them into a belief in conspiratorial thinking. And so it's really good to try to understand that, that there actually are a number of people who I've worked with who have said listen you know um I have relatives who came out of mm, some kind of belief system that would talk about the end times and so then when they left that they were able to find kind of a seamless journey into the world of conspiratorial thinking and Armageddon and everything is going to be ending sometime soon and you need to protect yourself and it all just fit all too well. And then other people who I've talked to who said that they're family member or loved one got involved in or raised in some kind of cultic thinking where there was an us versus them mentality. Uh, We can't trust anyone outside of us they're up to no good, they're going to be destroying the world as we know it, we have to band together and we're the only ones we can trust. I mean, the the irony, of course, within cultic systems is that these are people, unfortunately, who you can trust the least, but they will tell you that you can trust them the most. I mean, they will weaponize your information and use it against you and there's no privacy and people are jockeying for position there in very competitive space and will throw you under the bus all too easily within a cult. But still, you are given the impression that these are people who you can trust more than anyone else. And so then when people leave, they will sometimes, or even if they haven't left, they'll sometimes be open to conspiratorial thinking. And this idea that there are people conspiring, there are people up to no good, people outside of us, uh, outside of our system, our belief system, Where we have to band together so that we are not affected by them, infected by them, that we are not destroyed by them. There is a a general consensus that goes into the paranoid where, again, it is a kind of seamless transition into the land of QAnon kind of thinking and conspiratorial thinking in general. It just fits, again, all too well. What's also true that, you know, Sinane brought up is this idea then that these beliefs, these pretty hardcore beliefs about not being able to trust anyone else or that the end of the world is coming soon and you need to prepare yourself for it or you need to adhere to this so that you're among the few who will be protected from it, that it then becomes the thing that's most important, more important, in fact, than any of your relationships, more important than your own life, more important than anything. That there is this idea that beliefs take precedence over your friendships, over your family. And they, as I see them, stand squarely in the middle In between you and your own children, as we've talked about, you know, children in some of these groups will be discarded emotionally, sometimes physically. If your connection to them somehow is getting in the way of you focusing on the belief, focusing on the mission, I think a lot of people will say when they leave Cultic groups that they were able to suddenly see that this belief system had become a wall that kept them separate from their loved ones emotionally, sometimes physically. And that when they left, this wall that obscured and obstructed their view of the other and their connection of the other started to disappear, started to crumble. And suddenly they could see the people they cared about or the people they should have been caring about more than anything else. Suddenly they could see them again and they could see why that relationship was important. And they could see also that that relationship really should be the only thing that takes precedence. But that is not an option given to people within cultic systems. You have to choose the belief over. The people in your life. There is an idea that was crafted by Robert J. Lifton, who is a wonderful thinker on this subject. There is this notion of doctrine over person. This idea that not only do you have to believe in the doctrine over your connection to any other person, but you have to be thinking about the doctrine even over your own person, yourself. And so if you're exhausting yourself, you still have to keep up with the mission. You still have to be recruiting people, even though you're exhausted, even though you're sick, even though you're eight and a half months pregnant. You still need to be out there on the street getting people in. You still need to be believing in the doctrine, even if it's going against what is necessary for your mental health and what's necessary for your physical health, even if it goes against doctor's orders for you to follow what they're telling you to follow. And that is all very dangerous. And it's all very disorienting. And it keeps you, again, from your connection to the people you should and could be loving the most, and you should and could be caring for the most, including yourself. Nothing is more important than that. And I know every cult leader would disagree with me. But what's also true is that now that I've had a chance to meet a couple of cult leaders, it isn't something they apply to themselves. That's something really important to know. Because when it comes to putting anything between them and their needs, they wouldn't dare. Cult leaders take very good care of themselves often while they're encouraging everyone else to put themselves last. And so think about how people within cults usually are exhausted or sick or not well, but the cult leader seems to be doing just fine. And there's a reason for that. You will find that, as with most of the things we hear about in cults, there are extremes. There usually isn't anything in the gray. The rules within cults only apply to the followers. The cult leaders will be doing okay, usually have money, have medical care, have their needs taken care of first, and sometimes only their needs taken care of. And that's sometimes just justified by the people in the group, and that's why Rajneesh could have 44 Rolls Royces while his followers slept on mats on the floor. Somehow it makes sense there. But remember, it doesn't make sense. And if the rules only apply to the followers, then you're not in a healthy organization that actually cares about you. It just cares about the sacrifice they can get you to make. So if the leader seems okay and you are not, then it's a group that doesn't actually care about you. And it's like sometimes, as I've mentioned on the podcast, when I have people coming into my office, I can tell at times that one of the partners in a couple is more narcissistic in their way because they seem okay and they seem well-rested and they seem relaxed and they seem healthy while their partner looks ragged and tired and hasn't had time for themselves because their needs are not important. And because most cults are run by people who are narcissistic, this is what's going to happen on a larger scale. And I don't want you to be taken advantage of, as you know, and that's part of the reason that I have this show. So watch out for yourselves, even and especially when you're told not to. Take good care. I'll talk to you next week. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at indoctrinationpodcast. And for Twitter, find us at at underscore indoctrination. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website, at www.podpage.com forward slash indoctrination.